Well, you know what? We know what, what else won't happen with optimism. Optim- you know what else won't happen with optimism? What? Say it again. Photosynthesis. 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 There we go. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I am your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by Sylvie Lubau. Sylvie, we're here again. We're back at it. Back again. It's another episode. Love it. Yes, today we have Maddie Hall, who is the CEO and co-founder of Living Carbon on the show. Living Carbon is a San Francisco-based company that's tackling climate change through bio-enhanced trees. So trees that take more CO2 out of the air. It's pretty cool. Very different than a lot of the other interviews we've had. Very different, but like early stage startup, innovating, I'm pumped. I'm pumped too. Um, But first, what's going on? How are you? I'm good. I'm excited that it's Friday and I've been meaning to ask you this question all week, Savage. Mm -hmm. What's got you talking too loud? Well, as you know, I had COVID recently. I do know. And that was not fun. My condolences. Thank you. You know, just I had some congestion. I had some fatigue. And -hmm. unfortunately, I had some brain fog. And you know what that meant is as I was isolating from my family for 10 days, as I tested positive (laughs) on every rapid I took, (laughs) at first I thought to myself, this is going to be a nice vacation. You know, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to go to my bedroom. I'm going to watch all that content I haven't been watching. All the shows, all the I'm movies. I'm going to watch the Batman. Three-hour movie here, three-hour movie. That was my plan. Yeah. And then <laughs> the first day that did happen, I watched like two movies, <laughs> thinking I could also just work just fine next day. And then I started to notice the brain fog. And basically, the worst part about this for me was I couldn't like focus or follow things. Yeah. Did you have this? Yeah, the brain fog was bad. And I, for whatever reason, the first time around, I chose to watch this Netflix show called, oh my God, Is I'm this forgetting cake? the name. <laughs> no, but it was like interdimensional <laughs> travel. Oh, you watched something holes. too complicated. Yeah. It was already too complicated. And it was in German. Come on. That, that was the move that no. I made. And uh, yeah, the brain fog didn't help. I'll say that. Yes. So I basically got very bored mm-hmm. and did not know what to do with myself and couldn't watch yeah. anything and couldn't read anything until I discovered that the one thing I could watch, the one thing that brought me joy <laughs> was the Great British Baking Show. Oh, yeah. When in doubt. Something about like the competition. It's yes. all good natured. There's yes. three different competitions in each episode. Yeah. I was watching it and the whole time I'm trying to figure out from the editing who will win each episode and who will be cut off. Because if you're watching it on TV, they can't just like let someone go who hasn't been featured. You have to care about the person's being let go. So like, okay, this person's being featured and this person. So it's this person. So it's one of these three is the best or the worst. And I'm trying to guess. And that was like enough excitement for me. But I got (laughs) so invested in these characters. You know, I guess they're real people. And these people, like the final episode, I don't want to ruin it. But the guy who won the gal, the person who won the most recent season, I was like in tears as they won. I was so excited for, by myself under the covers of my bed, just like in tears straight down my face, like, oh my gosh. Because oh. I basically felt like I had no interaction with anybody or done anything else for an entire week. It was just like, these people were my my, my resource through all this. That was your human connection. That was yes. it. Yes. Just baked goods, happy people in a beautiful kitchen. Beautiful tent kitchen, yeah. Making... Making, Making all kinds shoes, of cakes. Focaccias. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're invested and yes. something else you're invested in. 
I think I know. I'm invested in, in solving climate change. Yes, you are. I'm invested in having great guests on the show. I'm invested in having people that we can learn from. And it turns out Maddie Hall, who is the CEO and co-founder of Living Carbon, she ticks all those boxes. A great guest. She's someone who's committed her career to working on climate change. And Living Carbon is a really exciting example of a company that's accomplishing huge things after only, I mean, they started in 2019. So very cool um, to see how fast they are they are building and, and really trying to make a dent in the world. Let's get into that interview, man. Let's do it. Maddie, so great to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited that you're here. Um, you know, I read some articles about what you all are doing. And I got so pumped. I'm like, I have to talk to Maddie. I have to learn about this. <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming on. And um, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud. And it's called Talking Too Loud because I cannot control the volume of my voice when I get excited. I've always been like this. <laughs> and we want to hear about what's getting you excited. So I, I would love to know what's what's got you excited right now? What's got you talking too loud? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Um, and I love talking too loud, actually, when energy is infectious, it feeds that energy to so many people. Um, what's got me excited? I am just been so excited by the community of climate entrepreneurs and founders that's being created in the Bay Area and other countries as well. But just this, this really amazing collective that's been um, demonstrably making some, some impact, whether it's on the amount of tons that are actually being removed from the atmosphere or around uh, the quality of those tons, the scalability of different measurement systems. Systems. Like I went to a climate tech event last week and it was just like, I have all these climate friends now and I feel so lucky um, because not every industry has this sort of emerging, growing group of really talented people. It also really matters, I think, to be there when it's emerging. It's like, I think back to the first South by Southwest I went to, which I think was in like 2008. And I met so many people who were just at the very beginning of their journey. And like a lot of stuff didn't work out. And some of those things really did. And some of those people became the people who like defined industries. And it's like, you're just like a normal person hanging out with somebody else, like, because you care about the same thing. And it's, it's very cool to be there when it starts. It's very cool to see where it goes. Um, can you talk a little bit about, obviously, climate change is like the most pressing issue of our time. And there's a huge amount of investment now going into climate and clean tech. Mm -hmm. I think I, I read it's supposed to be like 6.4 trillion by 23, something on that magnitude. That might be wrong. But <laughs> I mean, that sounds great to me by all means. <laughs> can you talk about the intersection between like climate change and tech and the clean tech sector? And like, why are there so many people jumping into this right now? Well, you know, I, I think if we think about the urgency of climate change, right, we need solutions that can rapidly scale. Um, if we want to have any sort of shot at being able to avoid some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change. And I think, well, you know, tech should never view themselves as like the savior of climate change. There are a lot of developments and a lot of like basic foundational research that has been worked on in labs that I don't necessarily think has um, the system set up right now to be commercialized in its current environment. And so I think the role that tech can play is really helping to get new technologies out of the lab and testing out not only just pilot scales, but can this technology be applied in a way that demonstrably removes a lot more carbon. Um, and of course, there's also the market side too and marketplaces. But I think tech's uniquely positioned in just the ability to scale, to scale projects quickly and, and get 
them from proof of concept and lab to actually working in the field. And you're the CEO and co-founder of Living Carbon. Um, can you tell us what it is that you're doing and how you decided to get into this? Of course. So Living Carbon is a climate change biotech company. Um, and we're working on using advanced biotech, genetic engineering, gene editing, CRISPR um, to improve the photosynthetic efficiency of trees um, and also slow the rate of decomposition of woody biomass. Um, if people don't realize that when trees die or wood products are broken down in compost piles, all of that CO2 is re-released into the atmosphere. Um, and so we work on orienting plant biology um, and a lot of the different tools and technologies that have been used to improve crop yield, but specifically oriented towards carbon removal. Um, that's in short what we're doing. How did you get into this? How did you see this opportunity? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I think I learned a lot working at OpenAI, um, just about how to mobilize really technical teams and unify people around a really ambitious vision, a vision that's so motivating that it gets people to want to leave their current jobs because this is something that's aligned with their value set. And so with me actually coming up with this idea, I saw a paper about improving the photosynthetic efficiency in tobacco. I thought, wow, that's really cool. Um, I wonder if we could do this in trees because trees grow year after year and have what's called secondary growth. Um, and they're not harvested for yield until many years after they've been planted. So I thought, man, like, I would just really like to see if this is possible in trees. Couldn't stop thinking about it um, and talked to some professors in the space. And they proposed to do the whole project, all of Living Carbon, um, with me, with, with the grant. And I thought, geez, OK, maybe I'm onto something here. Or at least it's a viable idea that we should look at exploring. And how did you come across the paper? Like, how did you find that opportunity? How did you connect with these folks? The way you describe the story sounds... Like it was just very easy, which maybe it was, but like, I think for anyone <laughs> listening who is like trying to follow their curiosity and try to figure out like, when is it the right opportunity or this, I mean, this seems like a pretty bold thing to go after to me, maybe it didn't to you. I'd, I'd love to get in your head in terms of like how you, you decided like, yes, this is it. This is the paper. This is the context. I can be the person to do this. Yeah. I mean, I think in part, like I got to help edit, um, the Y Combinator 2018 Request for Carbon Removal Startups. And that just really sort of re, re energized this lifelong passion that I'd had around climate tech and carbon removal and energy that I'd had specifically around um, wanting to come up with other solutions to climate change. And, you know, when you reconnect with something that, like, even when I was in high school, an inconvenient truth came out, I remember watching it being like, what the heck? Like, why isn't everybody doing something? And so I, I got that exposure. And as a result, I ended up doing like a six month deep dive into what different carbon removal technologies are out there. Um, and I remember really liking being in the field. I got to explore and I had this day where I didn't sit at a desk at all. And I got to go outside and I was like, holy cow, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I, I love being outside. Funnily enough, I sit in the desk most of the day today, but um, <laughs> being able to have a role where you get to work with plants and trees was really appealing to me. Um, and also just thinking about solutions that can scale relatively quickly in a way that makes them a good fit for something like, like venture funding. And then how do you tackle like, okay, so you're going to be using CRISPR modifying genes of plants to allow them to pull more CO2 out of the air, right? To help them grow. Um, how did you tackle building that team? 
so much of building a startup is telling a good story that will convince great people to join you. And so the work that we do, we utilize a lot of different types of of advanced biotech. Um, And I was really fortunate to have the Y Combinator network to be able to reach out to different founders of companies like the former founder of Alpine Roads, who gave me a lot of early direction. Um, And funnily enough, like researchers really want to talk about their work. So I would just email authors of papers, um, put myself out there, try to talk to as many experts as I could. And eventually met both my co-founder and chief science officer just through my own network. It, it wasn't easy, right? It was like a couple of months of me basically following PhDs around different academic conferences and trying to like meet with them without actually paying for a ticket for the conference because that was way too expensive for me to go at <laughs> the time. And so what does it look like when Living Carbon has really scaled? And can you give us some context of the scale of it now? Yeah. So I think it would be like becoming the biotech institution that is focused on many different projects related to synthetic biology as a means of removing carbon from the atmosphere Um, and doing so both on storing that carbon underground for longer. So different traits that we look at, like producing really durable biopolymers or um, being able to hyperaccumulate nickel as a means of slowing the rate of decomposition from fungal breakdown of trees, and also photosynthesis enhancement. And so being able to have multiple different traits that we're working on deployed at multiple different trees at scale. Um, so right now we've, we've done four different planting sites, but we have production capacity next year to plant about 7 million trees, which I think is going to be really exciting. So our first major plantings will be at the end of the year. And then, you know, it takes a while to bulk up our inventory of seedlings, but we are introducing the world's first photosynthesis enhanced tree in a hybrid poplar. Um, And shortly after that will be loblolly pine, which is the most commonly planted timber tree in the U.S. So 1.6 billion trees are planted each year on managed land. And I would love for most of them eventually to be ours. And where are those going to be planted? Um, So the areas that we focus on are like idle agriculture land, marginalized land, underperforming timberland. I think a big part of uh, the first principles thinking that I had with Living Carbon was there's this tension right now between agriculture and the need to feed our growing population, right? Which we've seen in particular with the wheat shortage as a result of the war in Ukraine this year, and the need to reforest and remove carbon from the air. So if you fundamentally improve the unit that you're using to remove carbon, right, the product, Um, both with the speed and growth rate of the tree, but also creating these products and these seedlings that are uh, resilient when it comes to drought or other types of traits, you can get to a place where maybe those two are not in conflict anymore. So as a result, we focus on everything from abandoned mine land to underperforming timberland. And just to make sure, like when you're putting this on like timberland, are you expecting that these trees are going to be cut down or are you expecting that they will live on or what's the expectation there? So it really depends on the plot right? And how close they are to a mill. Um, We do with our landowner partners about a 30 year contract in most cases. So at that point, the landowner can do with them what they would like. Um, If that means harvesting them for saw timber, that's fine. At that point, the trees will be so big, they can't really be used for pulp anyways. And they'd be used for durable wood products like furniture. Got it. It seems like a compelling story to me. But can we can we go back to the story part? Because I agree with you completely. It's all about telling the right story. And What's the story you were telling people when you started that got them to join and how has it changed to today? Yeah. I mean, the story that I was telling people 
when we first started from a recruiting perspective? What if we could apply a lot of the tools that's helped us increase the yield in our food for carbon removal and for good, right? And that really caught the attention of a lot of plant biologists that were working in more of a traditional space, maybe at DuPont Pioneer or other companies. Um, And then thinking about, geez, like there was a lot of research that was done around trees and and tree enhancement when biofuels were going to be a thing as a possible feedstock. Um, That decreased, that uh, attention decreased in the mid-2010s, but now we can still use a lot of that work and a lot of those protocols to be able to do the work we do today. So I think it was more on describing what was possible and helping to use biotechnology to change some of the very valid critiques that people have around forestry and nature-based solutions. Um, Now, I think it's more of demonstrating that we want to be, and we are really the leader in synthetic biology as it relates to carbon removal, and not just from an R&D perspective, but from a commercialization perspective, right? We could come up with the best, most amazing way to improve photosynthesis in the world. But if it's not actually deployed at scale, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, So you started in 2019, is that right? Mm -hmm. That means you've built your company the majority of the time we've been during the pandemic. Yeah. What has that been like? Hard. (laughs) I mean, I think any, I mean, we were running an in-person biotechnology company during the pandemic. Um, I think like one of the things that I'm the most proud of is how creative we got to be um, when it comes to continuing to make progress, because a lot of companies, especially in plant biotech space, just sort of shut down, put everything in storage and then wanted to, to resurrect what they were doing. But in my mind, like COVID is climate change, right? Mm. Um urbanization, cross-contamination, habitat destruction of the animals so that they're in much closer context with humans is largely what was what created COVID-19. And so to me, it didn't feel like we had much time to waste at all. And if anything, like the more we let these pandemics debilitate our ability to make progress on climate change, I think the the harder and harder it's going to be to actually make progress. And so how did you manage that? Like how many people are on the team today? Do you go to an office like to work on plants or are you people coding? Like how does this work? Yeah. So um, in most cases, the vast majority of our work is in lab. Um, so we had everything from shifts to surveillance testing required to enter the building um, to you know a very intense masking policy. Um, We're fortunate that we have a lot of molecular biologists on staff. So we had help in developing a really robust COVID policy um, that worked very well uh, up until Omicron. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, the vast majority of our team is in person, but our commercial team is remote by default. And based on what you've learned at this point in your journey, do you have advice for folks who are just starting? Would you have changed things about the very beginning based on on what you've learned so far? I think... um, Doing a hard startup is actually easier than doing a easy startup in some cases, um, especially when it comes to recruiting talent. So I think I definitely picked a very hard thing to do. <laughs> and, and you don't I hear think, that every day. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think from a recruiting perspective, from a PR perspective, from um, telling the story, like photosynthesis enhanced trees, they capture people's hearts and minds, right? We don't necessarily believe that they are the solution to climate change, right? Nothing is but they start to change the narrative. 
around how do we think about biotechnology as a means of removing additional carbon? And what is the research that we need to do right now to ensure that we're deploying products, but also doing so in a safe and responsible way? Um, to actually answer your question now, um, let's see, what do I wish I had done differently? Um, I love science projects. I wish I'd focused more on sort of the, the commercialization strategy earlier on, actually. I think we've done a good job now doing these things in parallel. But yeah, and, and the other takeaway that I have for people would be um, just because someone who's part of academia or has been doing something a long time says that this idea is never going to work, you're crazy. And they're jaded because they've been in the industry for so long. And if you listen to them, then nothing new would ever happen. Um, so many people have told me that what we're doing was impossible, but you learn from those people and you figure out why they think that, and then you update your strategy to address those questions. Let's talk about optimism. Yeah. You strike me as an optimistic person, um, and you are tackling a very, very hard thing and believe that it will work. Should we be optimistic in our fight against climate change? I don't think we have a choice. There are times when I feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, and also like the one really truly non-renewable resource we all have is time. And so I'd rather spend my time trying to do something ambitious with the potential to positively impact future generations as opposed to just, you know, accruing wealth or capital for myself or power. But yeah, I think we have to be optimistic. I also think that like humans are very resilient and um, there are there are ways to slow climate change that are really drastic from a geoengineering perspective. Um, I think the one future state that I'm pessimistic about is this idea that we can take a small portion of humanity up into space when the planet gets too challenging to live on and create new ecosystems on other planets or live on Mars. Like, if we can't understand how to heal our ecosystem, then like, how do we think we're going to create one in a stable way that would persist in perpetuity? We can't just abandon our home planet. Um, my pessimistic attitude about that future state is what I think inspires me to be more optimistic about climate change. And what do you think, you know, based on what you know now, like living in this space and going to these conferences and seeing the progress that you're making um, and seeing like a path towards pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere, what would be your advice for people who are not a part of the climate industry so that more people can be making progress? Like, what advice do you give to your friends? Like, if someone asks you, hey, Maddie, what should I be doing? What do you say? Um, I think there are a couple of things, right? Like, obviously, your time is your most valuable resource. So I would say work in climate tech. There are tons of amazing companies that need a lot more talent, especially on the commercialization and go-to-market side of things. Um, the second would be be conscientious about your emissions. Just inform yourself about how much carbon are you emitting with every flight that you fly. And actually um, doing advanced purchases from newer technologies to um, provide them with early stage revenue, but also to ensure you've, you've done your part individually. And I think one thing that's been really cool to see has been corporations really um, have led this sort of new wave and private individuals have led this new wave of providing early stage support for carbon removal, Stripe. Microsoft, Salesforce, Shopify, like these are the folks 
I think it could come down to about 10 different companies slash individuals. These are the folks that have really catalyzed this new wave of, of carbon removal startups. Of course, there are people that have been working on the problem for decades in their entire career. And like that new sort of generation of carbon removal technology companies owe a lot to the work that's been done previously by a lot of NGOs. And I think there's still a lot of opportunity for collaboration, but like in the, in the absence of government action, there is a huge role for companies to step up, right? Like advocate for your company, making a net zero commitment too. Corporations are very large emitters, much more so than individuals. It's a little scary what you're saying, which is that like, it comes down to private individuals and it comes down to like corporations to decide that this is what my consumers want. And also I think morally it's the right thing in that like the government doesn't seem to be doing things like at least fast enough that are like changing the game, right? Um, that's kind of a scary, it's a scary thought and also optimistic at the same time that there are people taking action. Is there anything that you can see that um, if the policy changed in a, some way, it could actually be impactful or could actually get through Congress? Like, because I haven't seen that thing and it makes me sad and frustrated. But like, do you see something that's like, oh, if this happened, we could really accelerate what we need to do? Because it's obviously, and I'm as I say this, what I'm thinking about is like, we need to emit less. We need to use more renewables. Like there's limits, like physical real world limits on the speed of some of that, right? With like battery tech and stuff. But like, what are the other things that can happen at a government level that can change the game? I mean, I think it's actually quite simple and it would be a federal price on carbon, right? Um, and actually treating it as, as a true commodity. And then uh, governmental commitments to purchase early tons from carbon removal projects. Like right now, the carbon market is not really a market at all. Uh, not this is where I'm a bit pessimistic, but like there's not necessarily pricing that really um, the it, uh, pricing sometimes like reflects the duration of time in which carbon will be removed from the air given a project. Um, but there needs to be some sort of quality standards right now in carbon markets, and there are, but they don't really they haven't really worked very well at scale. And I think the EU has done a much better job here. But there's also what the what the U.S. government could do would be. Um, buying, I think what's called in part like um, a, a gap contract, which is being willing to pay the difference and subsidize the difference between how much money it costs to scalably remove carbon right now and what the current price per ton would be selling for. But no, I mean, it's really sad. It's really, really sad, the lack of government action when it comes to this stuff. Specific agencies, I will say, like RPE, the Department of Energy, USDA, they're providing very large grants, right? Biden has like an office of science that's also been doing a lot of work um, to help fund these new technologies. But like Congress and the Senate, I mean, come on. Like, but I guess it's sad because it's like, what do you expect at this point in time? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a sad place to be. It's very hard to do the thing that's actually the long-term thing that affects everyone that so many people do not even exist. And the sad thing is that like, the work that we do is is not really, it's never been like a partisan thing, right? Like, in fact, most of the people that are especially excited about um, all of the new jobs that could come to mm -hmm. their, their towns and their communities are like rural communities in the South and like traditionally very conservative areas. Um, they want to participate in carbon markets, um, not to overly generalize here, 
but they also want to do something that has a positive legacy for their kids Mm -hmm. um, and for their families. And it's good for the environment and also good business. And I think if we can frame carbon markets and carbon removal around that, then we could really get everybody on board. The thing that gets me about it is like, you know, you're working on incredible tech. There's a lot of companies working on incredible tech here that don't get enough attention that actually investment now is what avoids that future, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. I also think, and tell me if you, you, <laughs> if you agree with this, I mean, we basically have to remake most of the economy, right? To, to yes. get to this place. Yeah. Let's say we do that. It's like snap our fingers and it's happened. Because of how everything is set up right now, and it's going to be individual companies, corporations that figure this out, individual people, it also seems like it's going to create massive wealth disparity. Because anyone who is one of the people who helps to truly change the game here, they're going to be fabulously wealthy as a part of this. And so it seems like it's also going to like, the solution may end up getting, like, let's say it all happens. We're going to end up in a spot where everyone who is wildly successful in climate tech is also going to be extremely wealthy, uh, probably more so than anyone in the history of the world. Because if you go back to anyone who's been the, the people who kind of brought energy to the masses more industry to the masses. Um, that happened. Do you think about that in all of this? Or like, hell yeah, that's why we're going to get investment. And that's why this change will actually happen. Um, I think, like you said, it's kind of both, right? Like it's the golden goose is that we do have to have these dramatic changes. And that does open up a lot of opportunity. But that's also why investors invest in early stage carbon removal companies and climate tech companies. Um, I think like one area that I'm optimistic around is that most of the people who went into this, this space um, didn't do it to make a huge amount of money, yeah. right? They did it because they value impact. And a lot of the companies are structured as public benefit companies or have some sort of charter. I know we do um, that, that allows us to pursue activities directly related to our mission that aren't actually purely for optimizing shareholder value. And I think having those sort of good governments in place is like, at least from my perspective, one of the biggest things that we can do. And also just really trying to value and like we need like a lot of the largest landowners in the in the US, right? Um, and the family foresters, they have to be a part of this transition. Um, and my hope is that a lot of the smaller towns in Appalachia, where, you know, coal companies and mining companies have just really left and left land in a really terrible spot and removed a lot of jobs. Um, a lot of the new, like whether it's wind or renewable power or carbon removal can come in and provide um, new sources of revenue and, and economic opportunity for those communities. Yeah. And that like, we need those people actually, like we need, we need people in those communities to be a part of what, what we're working on. Otherwise, like we'll fail. Yeah, that's so. a great point. And I mean, I think that is the optimistic and the view that we need and like what, what, what will probably hopefully happen, right? Is like, that people do get on board because they're going to look out for what's good for their community. Um, and that's jobs and that's consistency. And that is, you know, this like positive future. And it's exciting to talk to you and hear your view of the world on this stuff as someone who lives and breathes it every day. Um, it gives me hope. It makes me excited. I'm glad. But you know why we need solutions now is because like the only chance I think we have of, of preventing sort of dramatic reactionary action to something like this is through the work that's done today and between now and 2030, really. Yep. And so what's next for you on this journey? What's next for for Living Carbon? Um, so Living Carbon, I think we've been focused specifically on getting our first product to market. Um, 
and sort of starting to change the narrative around the role that synthetic biology can play when it comes to carbon removal. What's next for us? Scaling the work that we do to actually maximize carbon removal um, and then starting some new R&D projects that are more focused on more permanent carbon sequestration. So being able to sequester carbon for more than 100 years using um, trees or sort of the byproduct of trees. Cool. Maddie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, where can people find you to connect and to learn more? Yeah. Um, so livingcarbon.com. I think we try to do a good job being one, super transparent about the work that we're doing and two, like inform people in a, um, a relatively technical, but also digestible way. Um, we've got a blog that outlines some of our work on photosynthesis enhancement. You know, you can find me on Twitter, Maddie Halla. Someone took the actual Twitter name, so I had to add the A at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I love talking about what we're doing, whether it's to like communities of high school students taking AP Biology um, or companies that are looking to procure carbon removal credits or folks that are interested in working in the space. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time. Um, we're going to be rooting for you. We all need you to do this. So no pressure, but uh, <laughs> kind of can you solve this? We'll look forward to you solving all of climate change. Oh, um, gosh. No, There's no way in hell I can do it all. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it's it's very cool to see how quickly you've done this. Um, and going from those insights, that simple insight of like using photosynthesis, photosynthesis, it's okay. <laughs> happens to me all the wow. time. Once you know when you start saying a word and you just lose the yeah. ability, photosynthesis. Yeah. I think it's amazing to see how quickly you've done this and how quickly you're scaling. It's an inspirational story, um, and we're excited for the future of living carbon. So thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Photosynthesis. See, you did I can it. Do it. <laughs> Once I screwed that up once, I was like, I'm going to lose all yep. of my ability to speak. Uh, it's gone. I get it. I get it. I can say photosynthesis, but I get it. Yes. I understand. Good for you. What I didn't understand was all of the science. And what I want to understand is more of the science. It was super interesting. And I want to read more, know more. What'd you think? My instinct was to ask even more questions going deeper and deeper, even though I don't really understand it, to attempt <laughs> to understand it. And then she would yeah. explain. I just, I, I felt like we were getting to an area where like, I might understand like 5% of what she's saying if we go too mm -hmm. deep. So it's probably not helpful for me, probably not helpful for everyone else. But as she said, there's a lot more information on what they do on their site, livingcarbon.com. And there's a lot of great articles written about them that kind of break down what they're doing. And one really cool thing actually she didn't mention was just like, the ratio between the number of trees you need to pull out all the CO2 out of the air if they don't have the advanced like photosynthesis or not. And it's something like 20 trillion trees. These numbers are wrong, but it's something in the order of like 20 trillion trees down to like 3 billion. Like it's an enormous difference. Like you would only need 3 billion of these. Yes. Of these biotech trees. To have like a really significant impact. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And then you think about the labor of planting all of those trees and what goes into that and the space for the seedlings and the watering, all the stuff. It's like, it really is scales the problem to a, a very different level, which is awesome. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting because like working in this space, clearly you have to be optimistic and believe that we're going to have as a society, 
the ability to overcome climate change, which my human instinct, I like, I believe that. I hope yeah. that. And yeah. you have to be pessimistic enough that if you don't, if you're not the one that's solving it, then it won't happen. So it's it's a really interesting thing because it's it's so mission driven. Yeah, I guess like you are such an optimistic person. And the other thing that I was noticing about both you and Maddie, whether you're a SaaS company or a you know climate change clean tech solution, um, if the pessimism can still be motivating and energizing for you to like do the work and innovate and problem solve, that's what it really comes down to. And mm -hmm. that's what she's doing. That's what you guys are doing at Wistia too. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. You have to believe to do the hard stuff that you can yeah. do it. Um, you if you do don't it. believe you could do it, you will never get it done. Like it will not happen without optimism. You know what else won't happen without being optimistic? What? Well, we won't grow this audience. <laughs> what? We got to grow. We got to grow. grow. We got to believe. So if you believe, if you're excited, if you're listening, if you're part of the community, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. Sign up with your email at wistia.com um, and the Talking Too Loud page. Subscribe to that channel. You get extra exclusive content. Lots of other content coming out from Wistia Studios you'll also be able to hear about, which is exciting. Um, and smash that subscribe button. That's what they say, Woo! right? That's what they say <laughs> yeah. in the industry. That's what they say. Are we bussing now? We bussing, bussing? Bussing, bussing. So you finally adopted it. Just now I did, as I remembered That's you great. schooling me on this lingo. <laughs> okay. Bussin' bussin'. All, All right. All right. Keep on bussin'. Okay, bye. Bye. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey... Rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com. <laughs>